I think that we need to start considering different ways to feed our reproductive sows um, because they are kind of, they're Ferraris, right? And you would put nothing less than premium in your Ferrari. So I think we should do consider doing the same thing for our, our sows and changing the feeding program to match the biology of the animal. A whole new era of communication in the Canadian swine industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the Canadian and global swine industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Swine It Podcast Show Canada is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Swine Veterinary Partners comprises four well-established clinics across Canada. Precision Veterinary Services, Premier SHP, Demeter Veterinary Services, and Demeter Services Veterinaries. Our nutrition group includes four companies, Nutrition Athena, Shakespeare Mill, Farmhouse, and Nutrition Partners, which serve swine producers all across Canada. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show Canada, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting edge insights and everything that's working in the Canadian and global swine industry. The Nutrition Athena, Shakespeare Mill, Farmhouse, and Nutrition Partners Nutrition Group offer the full range of nutritional product based on extensive research and developments and a solid team of experts all across Canada. Our objective is to provide cost-effective solutions, innovation, and support to producer from the entire Canadian swine industry. Welcome, everybody, to the Swine at Canada podcast. I'm Dan Columbus, and I'll be your host for today's episode. Uh, with me today, I have Dr. Leanne Huber, who is an associate professor in the Department of Animal Biosciences at the University of Guelph. Uh, welcome, Leanne, and thank you for being here. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me uh, join your podcast. Yeah, I'm lo really looking forward to the discussion. I, you know, we were just talking before that sows has been a frequent topic, but I think it's a it's a good one. Um, but before we get into that, just because some people might not be familiar with who you are, or to remind them of of uh, where uh, where you've come from and everything. I'll just ask you to give a little bit of brief background on yourself and your journey so far. Sure. Yeah, I love uh, answering this question um, because my journey was a little bit circuitous. Um, and so I think that students just starting out in the industry can maybe take a few tips from me. Um, so I grew up on a, a small farm in southwestern Ontario, actually, and we had a mixed farm. So pigs and beef cattle, which is a little bit of a rarity these days, I think. Uh, and we're pretty small. So we have about 50 sows farrow to finish and about 60 beef cows that we also finish the calves for and uh, 400 acres that we work and that supply all the feedstuffs for our operation. Um, and we have our own feed mill and things like that. So we're fairly self-sufficient. Um, and I still like to go back to the farm and help out when time allows too. So Maybe with that background, not surprising, I decided to come to the University of Guelph um, and I majored in animal biology with the intention of becoming a large animal veterinarian. And Dan, I feel like we are similar in that <laughs> regard. <laughs> and so, um, but I, I think part of that stemmed from just my ignorance of how many other career opportunities there were out there for me. Uh, so in my undergrad, I um, applied to be a summer student at the Dairy 
research station at the University of Guelph because I think that maybe was my rebellious stage or something. I wanted to do something different from my family, uh, not pigs, not beef cows. I thought maybe dairy was the way to go. So I went and I interviewed there, uh, thought I did pretty good, um, but didn't get the job. And so you go through those, you know, seven stages, um, <laughs> finally, you know, came to acceptance. Um, and they said, hey, you know what? You should apply to the swine research station as a summer student this year. I'm like, oh, you know, I didn't really want to go back to swine, but fine. Okay, I'll do it. Uh, and I did. And I got hired there. And while I was there, I was introduced to research and this whole aspect of possibilities that I couldn't have even imagined existed. And I was introduced to Dr. Case DeLang, uh, who was our, our graduate student advisor, both Dan and I, uh, and it changed my life. And so I continued on with a master's with Case and then with a PhD after that. And so really, it comes down to if, if I had gotten that job at the dairy research station, I probably wouldn't be sitting here with you today in this capacity. Um, so I think, yeah, our career paths are unpredictable and you should be open to those opportunities as they come along. Yeah, I, I agree. It's actually scary how similar <laughs> our, our career paths were, even though both of us had very circuitous and it was almost like a, a kismet thing, right? You know that we ended up working with Case at some point and that kind of sparked, sparked that interest because uh, mine, mine was exactly the same one. And I, I would agree, you know, advice to the people coming up is like, take the opportunities as they come and don't just have one goal in mind. And, and you know, because you never know where you'll end up. Maybe it'll be uh, as a swine professor somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> yeah, so, um, so today I wanted to talk about sow nutrition a little bit. And um, it all really stems back to my PhD. And I feel like a lot of us get attached to the projects that we did in our PhDs. And it kind of defines the research that we do, maybe for the rest of our careers. Um, but for me, when I started my PhD, the new NRC had just come out hot off the press. And everyone was really excited about it. And my PhD project was in lactating sow nutrition. And we were Case opened up the model for me and he showed me, you know, all of the assumptions that they made in the lactating sow model and all of the best guesses or as he called them fudge factors that they put in there to get the model to run for the lactating sow. And it was just such a stark contrast in the amount of data that was available for the grow finish model to feed into the model and make it quite robust versus the sow models, there was very little out there and they had to do a lot of you know, piecing together. So I got really into the nitty gritties on that sow model and um, that really sparked my passion. I said, you know what, Like, I want to be involved in the next iteration of the NRC and I wanna generate the data that we were missing in this 2012 uh, version. And so that's where my research program has really headed and that's where my passion is. Yeah, I think, think you're right. We always get uh, what we did in, in our PhDs, I think, ends up being a lifelong passion for, for a lot of us. Um, but I, I, I do specifically like this this uh, move that you're making with with sows, you know, even during your, your PhD and trying to get that information going just because, you know, and I've said that in, in some of our other podcasts, too, that sows have generally been ignored. Um, partly that is because 
it's so much work to do that type of work and, and take so much like a long, I'm sure, you know, and other students know, I know I've heard of like the stirring of buckets of urine. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, but um, I think it's definitely something that we should be looking at when we're talking about sow longevity and these high prolific sows, right? So um, is there any like particular projects or whatever that you've, you've done recently or, or that you're planning on doing that you'd like to, to talk, talk about? Yeah, I want to share uh, two little projects with you that are hot off the presses. So you heard it here first, folks. There you <laughs> go. Exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> podcast exclusive. <laughs> yeah, that's it. But to your point, it, I think it's like really hardcore people that get into sow research for the reasons that you stated. The projects are long. They're expensive. But in my humble opinion, they're totally worth it because we can make a big impact on the industry with the work that we do. So yeah, so the first project that I wanted to share a bit with you um, is is the one that I've been working with on Chantel with Chantel, uh, and I don't want to uh, you know repeat too much of that information because I look at it from a nutrition perspective, she looks at it from a mammary physiology perspective, and so the pairing is really great. But ultimately, when we're thinking about nutrient requirement models, right? They have to accurately reflect the underlying biology of the animal. And if they don't, then they're not very useful to us and they're not very adaptable to different circumstances. And so in terms of the gestating sow model, I think the NRC does a pretty decent job of mirroring, mirroring what the biology of the gestating sow is. And I think the reason for it doing that fairly well is because, especially in late gestation, the nutrient requirements are largely driven by fetal growth. And the fetal pool is something that we can very easily measure without killing the sow. So we can just look at litter birth weights, feed that back into the model and say, hey, did our model predict this? Yes or no? If yes, then we are fairly confident that our requirements are going to be sufficient for that animal. Um, but that's for the fetal pool. And I think the mammary gland is another pool. It's also developing in late gestation, also exponentially, but it kind of gets lost in, in that fetal pool thing because the fetal pool is so big. Um, but it, the mammary gland has to develop very well or else, you know, the whole lactation is going to be relying on the, de the development that occurs in late gestation. So this is something that Dr. Farmer and I have been working on for a bit. And Chantel will describe the study, and I'll just do it very briefly to set the stage for you. Um, where in gilts, we fed uh, in late gestation, so after day 90, we fed one of two diets. One where the lysine, require, uh, lysine was supplied at estimated requirements. And a second, the treatment diet where we supplied lysine 40% above estimated requirements via the addition of soybean meal. I put a little asterisk there because I fully recognize that, yes, we increased lysine, but we also increased all of the other amino acids with soybean meal. And I'll come back to it. Um, and so we fed this between day 90 and day 110 of gestation. We killed those sows. We dissected out the mammary glands and found, wow, in the 40% uh, lysine above requirements group, the mammary development was 40% more, a one-to-one. -one. It never happens in biology. It never happens. <laughs> Chantal and I were just 
flabbergasted when we were discussing these results and very, very, very excited, of course. Um, and so, so that's great. So that's, that's the stage. We, Chantal repeated the study in SOWS recently. We're just getting the data in right now. And it seems like the same thing wasn't true for SOWS as it was for GILTS. And we've discussed it a bit. And it makes sense because um, the, the sow is already coming into breeding with more mammary development than what a gilt is coming in with. So maybe there's less room for improvement for the sow versus the gilt, or maybe her mammary development trajectory has already been set in a sow because she already completed at least one lactation cycle. So TBD, I mean, we can't solve all of these things in one go or we would run out of um, jobs for us. <laughs> um, so anyway, the kind of take home from this is that we should be feeding our sows differently in late gestation than we do for the rest of the gestation period, but in particular, our gilts. And from a nutrition standpoint, I mean, the NRC tells us that already. The NRC tells us or estimates that lysine requirements increase by 200% between day one and day 114 of gestation. Most of that increase happening in the last trimester. Whereas energy requirements only increase by about 40 or 50% between day one and day 114 of gestation for a gilt. And so it means that we cannot possibly meet both energy and lysine requirements for those animals in late gestation with a single diet. No matter how much you bump feed those uh, gilts, you won't get enough protein uh, into them. So I was like, okay, that's, that's great. It's telling us kind of what we already know. Um, and so the other question that we have to answer though, is and now going back to my asterisk, the footnote is that yeah, we increase lysine in that experiment via soybean meal. Um, but the question is for practical diet formulation to be able to apply this feeding strategy in industry is it lysine? Is it protein? Is it something about soybean meal itself that was causing? this improvement in mammary development in the gilts. So that's what we're testing right now to be able to make some practical feeding recommendations. It's very interesting. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing that it, you have that one-to-one -one with, with the lysine, which, which suggests that it is lysine and not, not necessarily something else. But is, is there another amino acid or component that you are kind of suspecting that it, that it might be related to? Yeah, so I looked at all the ratios quite closely. We also took blood samples on those gilts so we can see how the plasma amino acid ratios are changing and things too. Um, and based on the formulation, it looks like lysine, yes, was the one that changed the most, if I can say it. Um, but also threonine was kind of in the top um, top three of the amino acids that we changed the most. So potentially. But my gut is telling me that it's probably the total supply of amino acids, because if we're increasing protein deposition in the mammary gland, then the sow is going to need all of the amino acids in order to support that protein synthesis. Well, right. And that's what that's what's surprising, right? If you say you just increase lysine and you get this increase, it's like, okay, well, how is lysine doing that? But the fact that you increase, but then it makes me wonder, 
if you actually provided them in the ratios that we think would be required for, say, memory development or something, how much more of an increase would you get, right, above, above what you're even seeing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned for Leanne's second podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love looking at ideal uh, ideal protein and amino acid ratios because you know I think a lot of people forget that where it's it's not just lysine or whatever we we like to talk about that but it is everything it's the total supply. Yep, totally. So a lot of work left to do. I have about thirty years left in my career, I think. So got to fill that time somehow, right? <laughs> more more than I have. So <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess I guess. I, obviously, the, the the interesting question for this would be is is what implication is this going to have for feeding our gestating cells, right? Because we are so much about feeding that same diet, bump feeding at the end, even though it doesn't work, right? And stuff like that. So where do you think that this would be going? I really hope that it goes toward feeding higher protein in late gestation. I have had producers come to me and ask, hey, like I saw your presentation I'm not set up for blend feeding or precision feeding. I don't have all the fancy equipment. What can I do? And I said, hey, you know what you should do is you should just top dress with a bit of full fat soy, extruded or roasted or toasted or whatever. Um, and he's like, okay, I'll try it. And then he came up to me at a conference a couple of years later while COVID was in between. So it's not really a fair measurement of time. <laughs> um, and he said, you know what? My sows have never done better. My piglets look fantastic. And I'm just like... Yes, thank you. Thank you for someone, you know, trusting me and trying it and then realizing that it made a big difference for their production system. Yeah, I mean, that <laughs> it's good to see that that kind of thing happens, right? And and obviously, um we do we do need to think about, you know, what what would producers be able to implement on their farms because it is set up, you know, one one feed bin, one feed line, right? So how do you do this? Hopefully with the introduction of ESF uh, and group housing and stuff like that. And so now we have that ability to individually feed sows, we can move forward uh, in, in, in maybe doing a little bit better on, on feeding them and looking at, at phase feeding. Yeah, we'll see. So, okay. So the other cool part that I wanted to tell you about this experiment uh, with Chantal is um, we, so we fed the lysine slash protein 40% above estimated requirements, saw that 40% improvement in mammary development. But we also weighed those piglets. So it's fetal piglet birth, piglet birth weight, if you can call it that, at day 110. And for that high feeding level uh, treatment, we only saw a 5% improvement in fetal piglet body weight versus the 40% improvement in mammary development. This is the part that got me excited as a nutritionist and as kind of a nutritionist with a modeling um, headspace or mindset, because it means that the guilt when we're feeding at requirements, according to NRC, the guilt preferentially partitioned amino acids toward fetal growth and sacrificed protein deposition in the mammary gland in this scenario. And then we added more lysine or amino acids to the mix. And she was then able to, yeah, still maintain that fetal growth, but now the extra could spill over and increase mammary development or protein deposition in the mammary gland. 
And so that really got me thinking like, how could this be? It's like amazing. And how does it link up with the NRC model and what the model assumes is happening? And it got me really thinking because if you consider our empirical studies for estimating amino acid requirements in late gestation, what is our response variable? What do we use? We use piglet birth weight as the response variable. So you titrate lysine or whatever in the diet in late gestation, you weigh those piglets at birth, piglet birth weight will improve with lysine or whatever, and then you'll reach some maximum or optimum level. And you're like, ah, that must be the lysine requirements for late gestation. So to me, it makes perfect sense that is exactly what we observed in this scenario. We fed lysine 40% above requirements and we didn't see any improvement in fetal piglet birth body weight. Um, so I was like, all right, that's, that's, that's interesting now. Um, but it means that we have to get a little bit creative with the response variable that we use to inform our requirement estimates for animals that are in late gestation. And to be able to like pinpoint that mammary development. So we're going to try it. And this fall in the brand new swine research station at the University of Guelph, I have a really ambitious master's student named Vanessa Kalustra. And she is going to titrate lysine slash crude protein in late gestation and then look at milk production in the subsequent lactation period as the response variable to tell us, oh, what should be our feeding level of lysine in late gestation? And uh, this is kind of, you know, the best way, though very labor intensive way that we can get at milk production potential without killing the sow and looking at the mammary gland, because that's not going to tell us for sure what will milk production be. I find that very exciting too, but it's also because I have, you know, my whole thing is changing the way we look at amino acid requirements or even any nutrient requirement. You know, my side of it has been health, but it's this idea of, you know, maybe the animal is not always prioritizing growth. And if that's our outcome variable, why are we using that as our outcome variable if that's not what we're trying to maximize in the animal we're measuring it in? So I think this is a perfect example of that, you know, in sows. Yeah, but now my question is, right, so if we increase mammary development by 40%, say, and you assume that that mammary development is going to correspond to increased milk production in the subsequent lactation period, be it 40% or not, I don't know, then how are we going to feed our sows now in lactation? Because we already can't get enough feed into them to minimize maternal body weight loss or tissue mobilization. So if we increase their milk production potential by some feeding strategy in late gestation, then what consequence is that gonna have down the line? So these are the things that keep me up at night. <laughs> I mean, it's job security because that, <laughs> you know, we've said it before, there's so many studies that could be done with that. But I think, like you said, it's a very important question uh, to look at, right? And it's all gives and takes everywhere. So, I mean, this is one of those things. Yeah. And I think it'll come down to like the farm level. What is the producer looking to optimize on their production system? 
Um, and how are they going to make the most returns on that? So if they aren't seeing returns on investment for whatever nutrition strategy that we're telling them to implement, then they're not going to do it. Yeah. What I would be interested to know is if this is going to have any impact on cell longevity in the long run. You know, you kind of did that, but we're having an issue with the cells. Not like, you know, mortality is is sky high now and, and having these issues. But how much of that is feeding them so that they can handle the, these larger litters and that? Yeah. So I have a second study, Dan, but I don't know. Do you want me to not talk about it? Are we getting close on time? Or We can we can keep going. I am totally fine with that. This is very interesting. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you find it interesting. And I hope the listeners do too. So, <laughs> hey, being that we're talking about lactation, why don't we go into that a little bit? So, so if you think about lactation for the sow, it is the single largest demand for the sow's physiology throughout the entire reproductive cycle. And if you think about it, right, like energy requirements increase by 60%, amino acid requirements increase by 150% just for milk production alone. So it's a massive demand on the sow. And we know that that demand is often greater than what the sow can consume. And so she will mobilize maternal tissues, protein, fat, um, and this is especially a concern for our, our gills because they have a lower feed intake capacity and they still have requirements for growth because they haven't reached their mature body weight yet. So they're the m- most vulnerable, if I can say, in that first lactation um, period. And so historically, and is common practice now, is to feed a single diet throughout lactation as well with constant composition. And we've really been focused on just trying to like get as much feed into the sow as we possibly can. But I was thinking based on our you know findings with the gestating sow, maybe the same is true for the lactating sow as well. Maybe we should be changing the composition of the diet as lactation progresses because we know that milk production isn't constant over a t- time. It's a um, milk production curve. Uh, and so, and some other things kind of like led into this. So like, we know that sows do not mobilize constant amounts of protein and fat throughout the lactation period, meaning that at different times, she will be drawing for protein or energy, depending on what's most deficient in the diet relative to milk production. And then also... Dr. Peter Thiel from Denmark, he did some factorial work and he showed that the optimal lysine to energy ratio for a lactating sow depends on her body weight, sure, but also on the milk production level of the sow. And I said, hey, the milk production level is not constant over lactation. So there's got to be potentially we should be changing this lysine to energy ratio as lactation progresses. Uh, so, of course, we did it. We tried it. Um, we created five diets uh, that titrated out the lysine to energy ratio. And for the nutritionist listening, the ratios were between 2.79 and 5.5 grams SID lysine per kcal, mm, mcal um, net energy. Um, and we made those diets isoenergetic. So it means that to increase the ratio, we increased the inclusion of lysine via crystalline lysine, um, soybean meal, and full-fat soy. And in this case, we use multi-parous sows, though we repeated it with gilts, but we don't have those data yet. So this is your teaser. Um, And we did an extended lactation. So we took them out to 24 
day lactation period because I really wanted to push them as much as we could within our system. And so the results were very exciting or I wouldn't be sharing them with you. Um, so we had uh, no difference in sow feed intake over the lactation period, no difference in sow body weight change over the lactation period, but piglet average daily gain increased with increasing lysine energy ratio, and it was optimized at a ratio of 4.2, which for those of you that aren't familiar, um, is the similar ratio that's recommended by genetics companies. It's on the higher end, but some of the genetics companies are recommending 4.1, 4.2. So we're like, all right, that made us feel pretty good that our model is working. <laughs> um, but that was over the entire uh, lactation period. And if you remember, my question was, is it actually dynamic? Like, should we be changing the ratio? And so we conducted some nitrogen balances, stirred a lot of buckets of urine. Um, <laughs> it's a good character builder for grad students. Um, and found that to optimize nitrogen retention in milk, the ratios were as follows. In week one, 4.3. In week two, 4.4. And in week three, 4.7. So it means that. To optimize nitrogen retention in milk, we would have to do a dynamic feeding program of lysine to energy throughout lactation and depending on the day or stage of lactation. So it's possible to create a feeding program like that with some of the precision feeding technologies that we have. It, it's exciting. So a good thing you, we, we decided to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's not actually hugely surprising. We, we look at changing nutrient requirements throughout the life, every other life cycle in the pig. But like we said this whole time, right? In the sow, we're just like one diet, we're good. Yeah. And I think you mentioned it in a previous podcast, right? Like in grow, well, nursery grow finish, it would be unfathomable to feed those animals a single phase throughout considering how much their nutrient requirements and feed intake capacity changes. But the sow's nutrient requirements arguably change to a greater extent throughout the reproductive cycle versus a grow finish pig. And yet we don't have the same mentality of we should be phase feeding or precision feeding or whatever name you put on it. Instead, we go, oh, the sow can't keep up, so let's get creep feed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with you know, variable results, with right? Vari yeah, so how much of that is like, oh, well, if we just feed the sow better, maybe we don't have to worry about that part as much. Very interesting. And I know it's a teaser, so I'm looking forward to the, the rest of the, your, your results as they come up. I think we'll have to have you on the podcast again. Dr. Huber <laughs> 2.0, yeah. yeah. <laughs> for, the, for the next 30 years or however long your career lasts or the podcast lasts, yeah, whatever comes yeah. first. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, well, I guess we are at a, you know, getting close to the, the end of the time. So unless there's something else that you wanted to kind of throw, throw out there. Okay, that's a, that sounds good. So, I mean, at this point, I'll just say, you know, if there's one one or two messages that you want our listeners to take home today, you know, what what would that be or... What's what's the future uh, looking like for this? Yeah, and at the risk of sounding like a broken record, I think that we need to start considering different ways to feed our reproductive sows um, because they are kind they're Ferraris, right? And you would put nothing less than premium in your Ferrari. So I think we should do consider doing the same thing for our our sows and changing the feeding program to match the biology of the animal would be my 
main takeaway. No, I, I agree. I, I and I've said this before. You know, I, I I love that this research is happening. I love that it's not me because it's hard work. <laughs> so it's good that there's people like you that that are looking into this, and hopefully we can we can change the way we we feed ourselves and, and get our productivity and, and sell welfare up. Right. It's time for our famous three. So with, with that, we, we end every podcast with the same three questions. Uh, so um, hopefully they're uh, given this a little bit of thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So our, our first question is clear one, right? Like what is your favorite uh, or, or go-to swine or animal science related resource? Yeah. Oh, I'm not going to be original on this one. And I apologize for that. But the gestating and lactating sow book edited by Dr. Chantel Farmer is my favorite book. I always go back to it. If I need to refresh on something, it's just such a great summary of the biology of the animal. And it helps me think about then how must nutrient requirements change knowing this biology of the animal. So that's my favorite book by far. I'm sure Chantel will be happy to hear that. I think she already knows my feelings on it. Uh, she, she she promoted her own book too, so we'll, we'll, we'll get sales of this book. Up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, this podcast brought to you by exactly. Maybe it'll be a sponsor. Um, so then our, our next question is: What book outside of animal sciences or swine or other resource have, have, would you uh, recommend? Yeah. So. Uh, I was going to say, I recently bought some sheep uh, on my own little property. And so I'm reading a sheep production book right now by Speedy. Uh, I think it was published in like the 80s or something. So it's fairly old, an oldie, but a goodie. Um, And then also I'm reading a lot of parenting books right now. I don't have a favorite to share with you, but uh, that's that's a learning experience in of itself. (laughs) I'm sure it is. That's another one I'm glad you're doing. (laughs) Again, check back with me in 30 years and we'll see how good I did. Well, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it'll be it'll be fine. <laughs> um, so, our, our final question is: in, When you think back to successful swine professionals or leaders, even outside of swine, right? What do you think sets the successful ones apart from those who may not be, you know, as successful? Yeah, I think my biggest piece of advice for life in general, even, is just to keep an open mind, because. You never, well, A, in your career path, you never know what opportunities are going to be out there. And so you just say yes to those opportunities as they come along. But I think as scientists too, and people working in industry is to keep an open mind because we should be debating things and we should be questioning things. And that's how we get better as individuals, as an industry, as scientists. So that would be my, my take home. Yeah, that's great. I, I think I've already agreed with that, you know, to saying yes and taking those opportunities. And it might seem circuitous, but it gets you where, where you're going to go. So I think that's it for our time and our questions. So I will thank you again for, for coming on the show. I hope it was a good experience for you. And hopefully we can have you back. Yes, thank you for having me. Yeah, and thanks everyone for listening.